So I don't, um, I don't know that I've ever pulled a fast one like this and changed the sermon this late in the game. So bear with me if you would. Um, we're going to be looking at Obadiah. I've actually preached from Obadiah before several years ago. Um, anyway, the book of Lamentations, in chapter 4, verse 22, it says this, the, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. So in that passage, so that was Lamentations chapter 4, verse 22. In the immediate in that passage, the author is speaking about the people of Israel. He's speaking specifically about Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion, he says. God's, God's chosen covenantal people who have been living in exile because of their own uh, repeated sins. He, he tells them that their punishment is now over. You could catch a glimpse of that when we just read Isaiah chapter 62. Your punishment is now over. But there in Lamentations for the people of Edom, their punishment was just beginning, the Lord says. So as we have studied the gospel according to John, and we'll get back into that here in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, one of the key passages in John's gospel that we have looked at is the truth of Jesus' words in John 3, verses 16 and 17. There's a reason that John 3, 16 is one of the most popular verses of the Bible. For God so loved his world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Similarly, at the end of Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 16, verse 16, he writes this. He says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. See, there are two types of people in this world. Two types of people, really, in eternity. The saved and the condemned. And so today we're going to look at this passage of Scripture that you've probably not spent much time in. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon preached on the book of Obadiah. Um, maybe, but I, I doubt it. Uh, in fact, according to BibleGateway.com, um, Obadiah is the least read and least studied book in the Bible. I would guess that you probably have no verses memorized from the book of Obadiah. That's my guess. So go ahead and turn there if you haven't yet. Um, today might be a good day to try one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you. Um, I think it's on page 772-773. Uh, most of you have found it by now, I can tell, but between Amos and Jonah in the Old Testament. Let me give you just a little bit of background on the book of Obadiah before I read this. Um, the first thing that we need to understand is we're not sure who Obadiah was. Uh, we're not sure exactly when this book was written. There's about a dozen men by the name of Obadiah in the Old Testament, and his name actually means worshiper of God or of Yahweh, actually. Worshiper of Yahweh. 
That's really all we know about him, and so I guess that's all we need to know about him. Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. And so in one sense, we, we could actually say it's the most minor of the minor prophets. Um, but the message of the book of Obadiah is not minor at all, and it's one that we would do well to heed even today. So I want to read these. I think there's 21 verses. I want to read this and then walk through the book. And as I do, I want you to listen for what God has to say to us. But before I read it, kind of I want to give you a little bit more explanation. I want to introduce you to the the characters that you're going to see in the book so that you can be looking for them as I read this. The first is Edom, the nation of Edom, E-D-O-M. These are the descendants of Esau. If you remember in Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis tells us that, that Esau is the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, and Esau is the older brother of Jacob. When Isaac and Rebekah uh, conceived these twins, Jacob and Esau, God spoke to Rebekah these words from Genesis 25, verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. And if you remember, um, Jacob and Esau had a, they had a contentious relationship their whole lives. Esau, as the oldest brother, he should have had the birthright, but he gave it away for a bowl of stew. Now, we won't go into all of their history this morning, um, but suffice it to say that God rejected Esau. In fact, listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. So the, the preacher of Hebrews, years later, centuries later, would say this about Esau. He says, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." Esau was unrepentant in his sin. This is the father of the Edomites. Ezekiel chapter 35 verse 5 tells us that the the Edomites as a people cherished perpetual enmity toward God's people. They cherished perpetual enmity, strife, toward God's people, the house of Jacob. So, The people of the house of Jacob, his descendants, and Esau's descendants are ancient enemies. So, let's read Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. 
All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, when the day that your strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow. They shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau a stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor in the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the house of Negeb shall possess Mount Esau. And those of Shephelah and there shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the hosts of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sherephard shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's just stop and pray right here. Father, I pray that you would um, help us to understand today. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we might praise your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you can see right from the very beginning of this, Obadiah begins by stating right in that first line that this is a vision. Meaning that, that God, instead of God telling him what to say, what he was, he saw what he was going to prophesy. It's important right here to remember that, that God himself says in, in Amos chapter 3 verse 7, speaking to a different prophet, he says, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. And he's about to reveal a message. This is a message that is woven throughout Scripture, the message of Obadiah. It's a message of judgment and grace. It's a message of wrath and mercy, a message of justice and salvation. And the message is this. God will deliver his people, and he will also stand in judgment over his enemies. This is the message of the Bible, is it not? God will deliver his people and he will also stand in judgment over his enemies. 
Here we see Obadiah deliver God's word over a series of actually three messages. So, so let's look at them. There's a message to the nations. Then there's a message to Edom. And then there's a message to Israel. So a message to the nations, a message to Edom, and a message to Israel. This will make sense, Lord willing, as we walk through this. So we begin with a message to the nations. Um, see how he begins after he says the vision of Obadiah. He says, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Obadiah begins his prophecy by stating that the, the messages that he is about to deliver are not actually from himself. Rather, that they are from the sovereign Yahweh, he says, the I Am. That's what the title Lord God means there. He says, these are not my words, these are God's words. So listen to the rest of verse 1. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. This is the truth number one that I want us to see this morning. Truth number one is this. God sovereignly uses nations to accomplish his will on the earth. God sovereignly uses nations to accomplish his will on earth. Have you ever, have you ever wondered if, if the opposition that Christians in, in our country... The, the opposition that we face kind of increasingly, have you ever wondered if it's actually discipline from God? I know that a lot of people will dismiss that quickly, but have you ever wondered if maybe part of it is true? At least in, in part, if it's true? Now, make no mistake, the, the world hates Christians because it first hated Christ, but governments have been ordained by God, and they can do nothing without His consent. And the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. So historically, whenever there has been persecution, the gospel has flourished. It has spread and gone to other places. It has, God has used persecution beginning right in Jerusalem in the book of Acts to spread the gospel around the world. Why is that, why is that so? Why does the gospel flourish when persecution um, happens? Really, it's because complacent, casual Christians are eliminated in those places. Complacent, casual Christians are eliminated. In other words, they stop pretending to be Christians and when, when death is on the line, they will deny themselves in order to, they will deny Christ in order to save themselves, right? When death is on the line, we will deny Christ in order to save ourselves. Does that, does that scare you? Probably should. It scares me. I wonder what I would do if death was on the line. Will we trust in Christ? Well, God has set apart for himself a holy people. Uh, Malachi chapter 3 tells us that he is like a refiner's fire who will burn away all of our impurities. He will take away all of the sin so that we may be a holy people. So listen to the words of God from Malachi chapter 3. This is verses 1 through 4. He says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. We saw this, right, as we've worked through John's gospel. John the Baptist prepared the way for him, and, and Jesus, who they sought, the Messiah, the Lord, suddenly came to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. So while we fight opposition... And, and, and will increasingly turn, this opposition will increasingly turn to persecution. We must remember that God is refining us. He's making us holy through this process. God sovereignly uses nations to accomplish His will on earth, and, and He has used Edom here. At the time that Obadiah writes this prophecy, the time he is prophesying, The people of Israel have been in captivity. Um, They're in exile. But Lamentations 4.22 that I read at the very beginning um, says that their time of punishment for iniquities is over and that now it is time for judgment upon those who do not call upon the name of the Lord. And God will use the unrighteous to judge. God will use the unrighteous to judge. Another Old Testament prophet, that minor prophet that maybe we aren't as familiar with, maybe a little bit more familiar, is Habakkuk. He didn't understand this at first. He didn't understand why God would use unrighteous people to judge even his own people. And in fact, he, he looked at God's own people. He saw their sin, and he asked God how long he would allow them to continue. So, so listen to his opening words in Habakkuk chapter 1. He writes this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted, he says. Do you remember God's response to Habakkuk's prayer? He responded by telling Habakkuk that he was going to raise up a people more wicked than the Israelites. Habakkuk looked around at God's own people, the people of Israel, and all he saw was violence. All he saw was sin. The law was powerless to keep them in check. And he cried out and said, God, how long? And God responded by saying he's going he's to raise up a people more wicked than his own people who are going to judge the Israelites. Habakkuk didn't understand that either. Why would you do that? And even though we often don't understand, God sovereignly uses nations to accomplish his will on the earth. Sometimes that is through discipline, But that's not the only reason that he uses the nations. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, he said, But when the fullness of time had come, when the the time was exactly perfect, God sent forth his Son, 
born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the time was absolutely perfect, at the very perfect time in history, when history was ready, God used the disgrace of a, of a Roman cross when execution had been perfected so that, so that those being executed were in perfect agony. God used the disgrace of a Roman cross to redeem for himself a people. He used the Roman roads, which were heavily guarded, and therefore they were safe for those who were spreading the gospel. God used the common Greek language for one of the first times in history. Everybody knew Greek. They were able to speak, and the gospel was able to be spread. God used it to spread the message quickly. God's will will be accomplished. And he uses the nations for his own glory. So this is where the prophet here starts. With a message to the nations. But then he moves quickly to a message specifically to Edom. So this is uh, number two. The second message here is a message to Edom. Or if I was going to subtitle it, I would say, or God's vengeance on his enemies. So a message to Edom is is God's vengeance on his enemies. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's exactly, really essentially, this is exactly the warning that God issued here to Edom. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is about to judge their sin and he's proclaiming a warning to them. But, But why would he do this? Why was God going to judge this this poor little insignificant nation? That unless you read the the deep parts of the Bible, unless you really study into the uh, the depths of the Bible, you, you would overlook Edom. Why would God judge this nation? What have they done? What great sins have they committed that warranted the attention of the sovereign God? Why are these people God's enemy? Well, because they have committed sin. And really, they have committed two types of sins. Sins that we are probably, personally, quite familiar with. Sins of attitude and sins of action. What they're thinking and what they're doing. So we'll start with sins of attitude. Proverbs chapter 6 says this, There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Edom's biggest sin was its pride, its haughty eyes. Listen to verses 2, 3, and 4. He says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. 
God will take away everything that this nation boasted about. Everything that they depended upon for their security. Militarily speaking, they thought that they were invincible because they lived in the, in the cliffs and the high rock formations around the Dead Sea. They thought that they were in, uh, invincible because they lived way up in the hills. They lived way up at the top of the cliffs. Like eagles, he says, they looked down on those around them, both literally because of their elevation, but also figuratively because of their pride, because of their arrogance. They thought that they were a great people, but God will make them small. God will make them paltry. God will make them insignificant. This sin, this sin of the pride of your heart, he says there in verse 3, It's the same sin that brought down the mighty Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Do you remember his story? Keep your finger there because I want you to be able to find Obadiah again. And just flip back a few pages, a few books, to the book of Daniel. Maybe 20 pages or so um, to the left. Daniel chapter 4. Verse 20, I don't want to read 28 to 33. This tells us of the fate of King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel 4, 28 says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Here it is. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws." This is truth number two this morning. So, nothing escapes God's notice. Nothing escapes God's notice. Even our own prideful boasting. Remember, the Most High, he says here to Nebuchadnezzar, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 famously says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is what killed Nebuchadnezzar, took his kingdom, and humbled Edom. Uh, Gordon MacDonald, who is a pastor, author, in his book, Rebuilding Your Broken World, he gives an example of the destruction that, that pride brings. So so listen to this little story that he writes. He says, When the space shuttle Challenger lifted into the sky and blew up 73 seconds into its flight, the world was shocked. 
Most of us have seen the videotape of that terrible moment many times. We can recreate the picture in our minds of the deep blue sky marked with twisted trails of smoke and large chunks of metal plummeting toward the ocean. And we know as we recall the grim specter of the explosion that among the falling pieces were the bodies of some of America's finest men and women. Most of us also know that the investigations into the cause of the tragedy pointed out some serious shortfalls in human judgment and material management. The New York Times put it frankly, the ultimate cause of the space shuttle disaster was pride. That's what the New York Times said. A group of top managers failed to listen carefully to the warnings of those down the line who were concerned about the operational reliability of certain parts of the booster rocket under conditions of abnormal stress. The people in charge were confident that they knew best and that they would not change the launch schedules. But history shows us they were wrong. Pride goes before destruction. And Obadiah was about to illustrate this on a national level. He was about to illustrate just exactly what this looks like. God says, you want to know what destruction looks like? Look here, so Obadiah, look at verses 5 and 6. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. What he is saying is this, just as thieves plunder a household, so grape pickers strip a vineyard. However, in both cases, both in the case of a robbery and a harvest, some things get left behind. You know what a garden looks like after the harvest. You know what these fields look like after a harvest. You know what an orchard looks like at the very end of the season. You know what it's like to be the last one to show up at the pumpkin patch for the year. When all the pumpkins are sold and the only ones that are left have been sitting there a little bit too long and are a little bit mushy. Well, in contrast to that, Esau... He says, he calls him Esau in verse 6, or Edom, the nation, prided herself. And because of that pride, Esau, Edom, will be utterly ransacked. Even its treasures, hidden treasures, will be found and taken from them. They will be stripped bare because of their pride. There are four things that, that Edom prided herself in. So see if you can see a correlation here with us. There are four things here. First, her wealth, treasures, verse 6. She prided herself in her treasures. She prided herself in her alliance with her neighbors, verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Edom prided herself in her treasures and in her alliances with her neighbors. The third thing she uh, prided herself in as a nation was her wisdom. Verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Wisdom. Edom uh, historically was known as an intellectual center, much like Boston would be for us today. 
Um, Boston is seen as a city of knowledge and intellect. Boston College, Harvard, Harvard, uh, MIT. But their wisdom and the wisdom of Edom is not a godly wisdom. It's a wisdom that is based firmly in the world. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Job, um, particularly the counsel of Job's friends, Job chapter 2, verse 11 tells us that, that Job, Job's friend Eliphaz was from Teman, T-E-M-A-N. That was the city he was from. This is the capital of the nation of Edom. And his advice, Eliphaz's advice, the wisdom that he so freely gave to Job, one of the things you know if you know anything about the book of Job, it was not godly wisdom. That's why he mentions Teman here in verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that the fourth thing that Edom prided herself in not only was her wisdom, but also her military strength, her mighty men. Yet God will so utterly humiliate them because of their pride, because of their arrogance, that every man will be cut off by the slaughter. Listen to verse 9. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, that's the capital city, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Security and wealth will be taken away. Wise leadership, strong soldiers, allies are all going to be gone. Nothing is safe from God's mighty hand. This is what God will do to the proud, he says. Because nothing escapes God's notice. Nothing escapes God's notice. See, pride gives us a a false hope in our own strength, our own security. With our pride, we feel indestructible. We think it will never happen to me, whatever it is, right? Pride, though, is a liar. But then he doesn't stop with pride. Because not only will God judge Edom for sins of attitude, but he will also judge Edom for sins of action, particularly their sins of violence. So so listen to verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So four things that caused God disgust. First was a passive uh, violence toward God's people. Jacob, the people of Jacob, your brother Jacob. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, he says, Remember, the the people of Edom were descended from Esau. The people of Israel were descended from his brother Jacob. So, So pick it up in verse 11. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, Jacob's wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You stood there and let it happen. You stood by and passively watched while Israel's enemies looted. And so God says, you're just as guilty as the attackers. Passive violence. The second thing that caused God disgust here is that they were happy to see Israel defeated. Listen to, pick it up in verse 12. Do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Again, he's still talking about the people of Israel. 
Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of his distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. They stood very passive. They stood aloof, it says. They were, they were watching, but they were soon moved into gloating. They start laughing at Israel's ruin. And then they rejoice. They're filled with joy at the calamity of God's people. Soon they're boasting. Literally, it means enlarging their mouths. That's what the word translated boasting here means. They're big mouths. You can almost imagine the things that they would say. Now who are God's chosen people? We're Esau's children, the firstborn. Look what's happening to you. You're being defeated. Now who are God's chosen? Now who has the birthright? And then in verse 13, they enter the gate. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. This also caused God disgust. They go in for a closer look at the destruction. And while they're there, they see Israel's vulnerabilities and they begin to loot them. And then finally, they stand at the crossroads as Israel's fugitives are running for their lives in this battle. And they cut off those fugitives and they hand them over, hand over the survivors You can see the progression of sin in their lives, can't you? See, because of wrong attitudes, Edom quickly developed sinful actions. Because of violence hidden in their hearts, they soon became a violent people. This is the downward spiral of sin. This is what happens to us, too. We may not think of ourselves as a violent people, But listen to what James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That leads us to the fourth kind of sin of abomination here. They ignored the coming wrath of God. Look at verses 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall soon and shall be as though they had never been. They will drink of the cup of God's wrath. That's what that's talking about. They will drink of the cup of God's wrath. Do you want to know what it's like to be condemned, as Mark 16, verse 16 says, or John 3, 17? It's right here in the middle of verse 16. To be condemned is to drink and swallow and be as though you had never been. To drink and swallow of the cup of God's wrath and to be as though you had never been. Wiped off the face of the earth. If you're an enemy of God, you will one day be utterly destroyed. 
I need to say that again. If you're an enemy of God, you will one day be utterly destroyed. However, please don't leave yet because there's good news too. However, look at the first word in verse 17. At least in the ESV, this version, the first word in verse 17 is but. It's Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, right? But God. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. This is Obadiah's third message. So the first message is to the nations, then a message to Edom and God's enemy, and now comes a message for Israel, God's people. So this is message number three, a message to Israel or God's victory for his people. So now there's a shift in the prophecy. God, through Obadiah, is now addressing the house of Jacob. So he has shifted from his enemy, he has shifted from Esau to Jacob. And now he gives them a new message. He gives a message of hope. He gives a message of promise, a message of deliverance and restoration. So verse 17 again, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be called holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. This is refuge. This is a mount of refuge. This is where we can run to find refuge to God's mountain, God's holy mountain, in which God's promises are fulfilled. In the Old Testament in particular, Mount Zion was the place where God dwelt with his people, the place where his people would run for refuge. In the New Testament, and, in now, and even to today, uh, God dwells his, with his people in Jesus Christ. John tells us that Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us, and we can find refuge in him and him alone. And God's promises will be fulfilled. Obadiah says here, the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. That's the land. That's the promise. Verses 19 and 20 are talking about the, the land that God has promised them, the promised land. God promised the people a, a land for their own possession. And, and Psalm 24 verse 1 says, it tells us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so we can say, ultimately, we, God's people, will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. God is faithful. The house of Esau, Edom, set out to destroy the house of Jacob, the sons of Joseph even, verse 13 says. And instead of, of a burning, uh, the burning fury of God's wrath is going to consume them so much that there will be no survivor. The word of the Lord has spoken and God will establish his kingdom. Verse 21. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Jesus promised his disciples that one day they would reign with him. <laughs> See, faithfulness to God today means reigning with God for an eternity. And we look forward to the day when the kingdom of God is fully established and finally enacted and he will reign forever. We long for that day and we understand that it is already 
even if it is not yet. Because Jesus is sitting on the throne, and he's sitting on an eternal throne. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The kingdom, Obadiah writes here, shall be the Lord's. So Obadiah in these 20, 21 verses presents us with a, I believe, a powerful message. A message of life and death. A message of judgment or mercy. A message of salvation or, or condemnation. In fact, the people of Edom, God's enemies, Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, destined for God's wrath. But God, Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The message of Obadiah shows us what will happen to those who reject God's word and his grace. Those who rebel in foolish pride. But it also gives us the hope of deliverance and restoration because the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And so we pray with Jesus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so if you receive him, as John mentions in chapter 1 of John's gospel, if you believe in him, put your trust in him, if you accept God's grace, if you repent and believe in the gospel, you will be saved. If you reject God's grace, you reject him out of your own pride, then like Edom, you stand condemned as an enemy of God. But if you would believe in him, you will be saved. That's the message of the book of Obadiah. And so we can say, choose this day whom you will serve. Let's pray. Lord, I, <clears throat> I thank you for the little books. I thank you for the little messages that look like they are only for ancient people who don't exist anymore. And yet they are truths of who you are and what you have done. Father, forgive us our pride. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we might stand on your mountain, your holy mountain that day. And proclaim the majesty of our Savior.
who loves us. Lord, change our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.